All right, today we will be in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you're able, please stand with me and turn to the text in your booklet. It's on page 14 if you have your pages numbered. And follow along as I read the verses. So this is Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and, the, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Sydney. Okay, so we're continuing in going through our journey with, with Nehemiah through his book. And this today we're in chapter 2, verses um, 1 and t 1 to 10. See if I can get this functioning. There we go. Okay. Um, trying to learn what it's like to be a restorer, trying to live into God's call for us to join him in the restoration of all things. So that's what we're doing because Nehemiah was a restorer par excellence, right? And so we're looking at his life. Um, before jumping in specifically to today and what I learned, the big thing I learned from this today and kind of the subpoints, I need to talk briefly to something that Nehemiah said at the end of chapter 1. It was the very last words that he wrote where he told us what his day job was. And he told us, I was a cupbearer to the king. So this was his day job. Initially, that doesn't sound very oppressive, right? You just go get, what, you get the, the wine cup and you bring it to him or you bring him his food or something, almost like a waiter. Um, but this actually was a job of great responsibility that had a lot of privilege with it. Um, in those days, th these kings, they were total despots, had total power. And the only way you could ever have a change of government is if you killed the king. And that usually happened by assassination. And the preferred way, the easiest way to assassinate a king back then, because they were so kept so tightly in their, their palace and all, was to assassinate them by poisoning either their drink or their food. Um, somebody who didn't want them would poison it. So that's why the need for a cupbearer. So the cupbearer, when he would bring the king's meal, anything he drank, before he gave it to the king, he would first drink the wine, he would taste all of the food, and then the king would sit and watch him for, what, five minutes or something? And if he keeled over, then the king knew that this stuff wasn't safe to eat. 
and in which case he would execute the chef, all of the kitchen staff, all of his assistants. He would totally clear house, right? Because somebody, he didn't know who wanted him assassinated. So aren't you glad you have the job that you have as opposed to working for that guy? Um, It was a very dangerous job um, because, I mean, if somebody poisoned it, Nehemiah didn't know or a cupbearer didn't know, they would... They would die from this. So it, it was his, he took his life into his own hands every day in doing this. Um, but they, these cupbearers wielded great influence. Um, very few people had access to the king like they did because he was allowed into the king's intimate chambers. He was allowed into the throne room where the king was. And we know from some things in history that, that cupbearers, they were not a formal um, advisor to them, but frequently would be asked for their advice. So they felt he held a very influential position. And to be the cupbearer, you really had to have trust, the full trust of the king to do that job, wouldn't you think? So he had full trust, he had full access to the king every day. So God had put him in a really significant position, divinely put him there. Like it says in the book of Esther, like Mordecai said to her, that um, it was for such a time as this that you have that position in the royal household. So he's not there by accident. God has put him there. And I want you to know as a restorer, as we've encouraged all of you to think through, what are my main places where I live, work, study, and play? And who are the main people in my life that I feel like God has put me there to, to influence, for, to bring shalom to them and to influence His kingdom? I want you to know that you are equally in the places you are and around the people you are by the design of God. There is, you are not in any place by accident. He's put you there just like He had put Nehemiah there. So what you do is very, very significant. So, now to today's text, so chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Um, And we learned two weeks ago that Nehemiah was a man who put first things first, if you remember. His life was fully centered on and around God, and we looked at the things in chapter 1 that saw that. This week, we're going to learn that a restorer, specifically Nehemiah, was somebody who had great faith in God. He had great faith. He had a profound trust in God and a very deep, utter dependence upon Him. And we're going to see this in five ways. And you don't have to write all these things down if you're taking notes right now. I'm going to bring all these up individually as we go through it. But specifically, we see His great faith in five things. That Nehemiah had the faith to ask. He had the faith to wait. He had the faith to act. He had the faith to prepare. And he had the faith to enter the storm. So that's what we're going to see about Nehemiah. So... Let's jump in. First, Nehemiah had the faith to ask. And this actually, I'm going to go back to the very end of chapter 1 for this, um, where in the very last verse, he made a really bold ask of God, knowing that the city was in ruins. He prayed this prayer to God. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. So he's not only saying, I'm available, use me if you can, but he's saying, I want to be the man. I'm your man. I want to go. I feel called into this. And so he asked God to make it happen. I need to give you a little bit of culture and history that will help us to know why this was such a big ask, because it's a really big one that took a lot of faith. First of all, culturally, in those days with these kinds of kings, 
um, who were absolute despots. You never approached the king of your own initiative. You, were only, you could only approach him if you were invited to approach him. And even if you approached, you could not start a conversation with him. He had to be the initiator of the conversation, and the conversation had to be on his terms. So you just couldn't walk up to him and start a conversation about something on your mind. You could only talk about something if he invited you to talk about it. So that's a cultural thing. There's something else that's going on here. Um, probably, we don't know totally sure, maybe a couple of decades before. Um, it's in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, if you want to read about it. Um, when Ezra had returned with that first group of exiles, they started work to actually rebuild the ruins of the city, to reset the foundations. And the governor of Samaria, so just north of Judah and Jerusalem, felt threatened by this. So he sent a letter to this king, to Artaxerxes, and he said, they're starting to rebuild these things. And trust me, if these people rebuild this stuff, they're going to quit paying tribute. You're not going to get taxes. Who knows? They may even rebel against you. Look at their history. And so Artaxerxes did. He looked at their history, and he made a decision that they would have to stop rebuilding. So he sent a letter back through the provinces, through all the governors that they all got to see, and specifically to the official in Samaria and said, we can't, the rebuilding can't happen, you stop it. And he gave him permission and he took military personnel down there and by arms of force, he stopped the reconstruction that was going on in Jerusalem. So that's been going on. So for him to speak to the king about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, he has to be invited into a conversation about that topic by the king, and he knows that even if it comes up, that the king's not going to change his mind. Um, have you ever heard of the law of the, P the Medes and the Persians? If you know much about their culture, whenever a king made a decree, it was set in stone and could not be changed. Even the king in their culture could not even change a ruling that he had made before. So in his mind, this was impossible, humanly impossible. There was no way that he was going to be able to change the king's mind or to get the king to allow him to go and rebuild. Um, it was something that only God could make happen. So it was a, he knew what he was asking God was a big ask. And I love the fact that he prays and asks that. It shows that he is really, he trusts God to do something, and he's really being utterly dependent upon the Father to do that. So I, I love that about Nehemiah. He was living out Hudson Taylor's famous dictum um, that I lean into a lot. Move men by God through prayer alone. Move men by God through prayer alone. And he knew that that was the only way that this was going to happen. He knew, and I think believed, Proverbs 21.1. He was a man of the word we learned. I'm sure he knew this proverb that says, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. So he knew that God is an expert, a specialist at changing human hearts and that God could be the one to do that work. He also knew his history. A hundred years before this moment, God had worked in the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, to allow the Jews to even go back. So he has some history with this and he was trusting God to do it. And I want you to know it's the same with us. I think in my act as a restorer, I've identified my place as my people, and some of those you're like, I'm not sure how to initiate a conversation. I don't know how to, how to do that. 
And a lot of, for us, it's a big ask. And I want to encourage you to make those asks to God. Not just the, here I am, send me prayers, but the Lord, I really want to be involved. You put me with these places. But I need you to be the one to make that conversation happen. I need you to be the one to set up a way, a something that, that maybe my, my workmates like are gathering together and it gives me an opportunity to lean more into them or something. Um, if you remember two weeks ago, Mel was here. And Mel shared how they had written down on their list of people to restore some people in their neighborhood, including a lady across the street. And it was like one or two days after that Sunday that they had done that and were starting to ask to be an influence that the water quit working in their neighborhood and that woman came across the street to talk to them and introduced herself. So they had made an ask and God moved on her and in her to do that. Um, I had two people this week who... I've had a number of people who are speaking to me about ways you're seeking to be restorers, and it's so exciting to hear that. Two people this week who told me that there were individuals that they were seeking to be a restorer with, they were a little bit uncomfortable about how to approach them, and those two individuals had actually called or texted them this week and said, hey, can we just get together for a coffee? The other guy, it's like, could we get together for like, um, I'm trying to remember now what it was, some event that they were going to do, but they'd been praying, they'd made the ask, and God was giving the opportunity. So, trust me, God wants, He's about the work of restoration. He wants to use me. And if you'll make yourself available and give the big ask, God will work to do that. So that's the first thing I learn about Nehemiah. The second thing I learn about him is we will see that Nehemiah had the faith to wait. He had the faith to wait. So chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him... I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, and I want to stop there. There's two really important words in this verse. If you're, doing, if you're the note-taking kind of person, underline them. The, word is, the first word is the word sad, and then that word nisan. That word sad is so important, it's repeated four times in the first three verses. You see it once in verse 1. And I I encourage you just to underline all those. Twice in verse 2 where you see sad and sadness. Once in verse 3 you see the word sad again. So it's a really critical word and we're going to get more to that in a minute. So why is he sad? Why is he sad in front of the king? Well, in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, the prayer we just looked at, he had specifically asked God to grant your servant success when? Today, when he had prayed that, he said, I want you to grant me success today. But I want you to know, the answer to his prayer had not come that day. It didn't come the next day, and it didn't come the next day. It didn't come that week. It didn't come the next week or the week after that. It didn't come that month or the month after that or the month after that. So according to Nehemiah 1.1, And this is why we underline that word Nisan. He first prayed this prayer in the month of Kislev, which would have been mid-December, mid-November to mid-December. And then here in chapter 2, he says, it's now the month of Nisan, and we're going to see today that God is going to answer that prayer. That's in mid-March to mid-April. So he prayed this prayer day and night, we're told in chapter 1. Day and night, he prayed this prayer for God to give him success before the king. Day and night without an answer right? Every day he would say, today, Lord. And every day the answer was crickets, right? Nothing. 
The opportunity to speak the king and not present itself. Jerusalem still lay in ruins. Nothing had changed, and that's why it was a sad day. And, you know, I want, as, just as I've been thinking about this, I want you to know, and you know this if you're living as a restorer, it requires not only faith to have big asks of God, it requires the faith to wait. Have you not had that experience? It requires the faith to wait. A lot of patient trusting. And here's why as a restorer. Because the places that we inhabit and the people that we want to influence, for the most part, we have very little control over them. Is that not right? I have very little control. And so what I have to do is I have to pray, make God some big ass, and like, I need you to be at work and pave the way for me, and only you can do that work inside of a heart. And so that's why there's a lot of waiting in being a restorer. Somebody has said, I really love this, true faith is waiting faith. True faith is waiting faith. So we pray, and we watch, and I know you've had this experience, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, right? That's, that's what happens so much. We're waiting because we know that God will do it in His perfect timing. But if you're like me, I want it now, right? When I pray a prayer, my prayer is a today prayer. Lord, I want you to fix this today, right? Just like Nehemiah, uh, I feel so much like him. I want things on my timetable. But the truth is, is God has a better timetable and he knows the best time to work. And so I just need to lean into that and trust him. So don't be surprised if part of being the work of a restorer is you're asking to be an influence if there's a lot of waiting in that because the people may not be ready. So like Nehemiah's restorers, we need to persevere in our prayer. Just keep praying. Trusting that in the words of Andy Stanley, what God originates, he will orchestrate. He will orchestrate it sometime. You know, many times I have had to wait. We all have. And I've had to persevere in prayer. I was the first in my family to become a believer. I prayed for over 30 years for my mom and dad to come to faith. And I thought it was never, as they were getting close to the end, I thought it was never going to happen. But God tipped some things, and they both came to faith in Him. But that was over 30 years. There were times I'm like, I'm tired of praying, Lord, because nothing's happening, and it just discourages me. George Mueller, have you heard of George Mueller? How many of you heard of him? Really famous uh, German pastor who had an orphanage, had over 10,000 children come through, started 117 schools, was famous for his prayers and for thousands of answered prayer requests, but he had to persevere in prayer. Um, he wrote in one of his journals that one of his friends... He prayed, for, who was he praying for to come to Christ? He prayed for 63 years before he made a decision for Jesus, for 63 years. And here's what George Mueller wrote. Don't let yesterday's seemingly unanswered prayer stop you from praying in faith today. So keep praying, keep praying, and wait. So back to Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah. He's been patiently waiting, praying for months. He still strongly carries the burden on his heart for Jerusalem and for the ruins that are there. He had handed that over to the Lord. He was patiently waiting, patiently praying. Um, but we all have bad days, right? He has feet of clay just like any of us. He's human like any of us. And we all have a breaking point. And he had his on this particular day. On this particular day when he showed up at work in the king's palace, 
the anguish on his heart was etched on his face. It was etched on his face. This day, he couldn't control his emotions and maintain his composure. So look at verse 2. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I love Nehemiah because he's like, dude, what's up? Um, And here's what I love about Nehemiah because if he was an average guy like me, um, the king would have said, hey, how you doing? And Nehemiah would have said, I'm fine. And that was all. And then the book of Nehemiah would have ended. Just one chapter and two, ver- two verses of chapter two, and that would be it, right? But he was a guy who was in touch with his emotions, and he wasn't willing to, to, to go there. And so it says in verse 22, in verse two at the end, he says, I was very much afraid. I just love his honesty. Very much afraid. Why would he be afraid? For several reasons. In First, it was against Persian law. It was written into their law books that a servant of the king could not come before the king with anything but a smile on his face, could never show a downcast face, and if he ever did, he would be banished from the palace, likely imprisoned or even executed for that. So him showing up today and the king notices his sadness, his life could be on the line, right? I also think he's sad because he's probably coming in this knowing that he's about ready to ask the king to do something to revoke a dictate that the king had made, and that does not happen in that culture. And I'm sure he was sad because he just, you don't know what kind of day is the king having. Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? So, the king asked, what's going on? And so now we're going to see that despite his great fear, that Nehemiah had the faith to act. He had the faith to act. He's very afraid, but he had the faith to act. And this tells me that his waiting was not a passive waiting. He saw the king's question as the very opportunity he had been waiting for. It was the crack in the door that he'd been waiting for, and he seizes the moment. So it continues at the end of verse 2. I was very much afraid, but I love that word. I, I circled that one with heavy, like five or ten, I don't know, a lot. But I was afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I love this. Nehemiah acts. He steps into the opportunity God's provided for him. In the language from this summer, what I used, he saw the kairos moment. He saw the opening and he stepped into it. He, he grabbed onto it. God had opened a door and Nehemiah is walking into it. He's acting, even though he's terrified. He has no idea what's going to happen. And we're going to see this all through the book of Nehemiah, that he was a man of action. He knew the importance of action in the moment, and he knew the importance of being prepared for the moment so that you can step into it. He knew the value of striking while the iron is hot. As Warren Wiersbe says, he knew that, and I really love this quote, like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. Like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. So here's the small hinge, but he sees it as an opportunity from God. Or as William Shakespeare said, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. He intuitively knew that, so he takes initiative and takes action. And as a store, we need to be the same way. We need to be prepared and ready with a sense of like, I'm not only doing the big ask and I'm waiting, but I'm ready to act when the moment comes. 
as scary as it might be, I'm going to step into it. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So look at verse 4. So the king said to me, what is it you want? And I'm sure that response sent chills up his spine, right? The king is asking. Um, His heart's ready. He seems prepared. God's been at work. He's asking maybe out of compassion for him, curiosity, whatever the reason is. And then he responds. And the response is the end of verse 4. So tell me, what did he do? What was his first response? He what? He prayed. First response. Adam, this really was his first response. Not, not like two weeks ago where I said that was his first response, but his first response, he mourned and fasted and prayed. So, but you're a good man. So he prayed. You know, and I love this because the adrenaline's, don't you imagine the adrenaline's flowing, his heart's pulsing, and in that moment, he stops and he prays. And we don't know what he prayed. I bet he rep- repeated the prayer of 111, would you give me success today? Would you have me find favor before the king? I'm sure he prayed for wisdom, for courage, help me to say what I need to say, for God to work. But whatever he prayed, I'm sure it was very heartfelt, I'm sure it was silent, and it was very brief. Um, it's what some have called an arrow prayer. How many of you have heard of that, that an arrow prayer? It's a prayer I shoot up before I step into something. I shoot an arrow prayer, a quick prayer up to God. Or I just heard this a few weeks ago, what some people call a flare prayer. I really like that, a flare prayer, a prayer where I'm just quickly shooting it up to God. And we're going to see eight more of these through the book of Nehemiah. Eight times he shoots up a flare prayer. I just, this guy is so cool. So back to the end of verse 4 and then verse 5. So then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, which that phrase I love because it, it's what he prayed in 111. So if your servant has found favor in, in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Um, I love it. He is so bold in his request. He doesn't flinch. He wants so badly to be a restorer of the ruins, a rebuilder of broken walls. He wants to be a shalom bringer that he just lays it all on the line before the king. This is what I want. And so what's the king's response? Verse 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him. Now stop a minute. I know you probably get tired of that, but there's, I, I'm doing it for a reason. Let's stop for just a second. I want you to put a box around the words, with the queen sitting beside him. It is not insignificant that he mentions this detail. It is there for a reason. So let me share a few things. One, a Persian queen was not allowed to appear with the king in any public forum. She could only be with him when she was with him in the chamber or in the, in the palace or having their meal in the throne room. She was not allowed out in public. So what we know is, is the fact that she is present, that she's sitting there, that this is in a very intimate moment, like it's, it's, like it's closed in, there's not a lot of people, it's probably just the king and queen on the throne. Um, do I have that picture again? Sitting there, that this conversation comes up. And he includes this detail, a lot of commentators think, because it's highly likely that she influenced his decision. You know, maybe she uh, leaned over and whispered something in his ear. Might have jabbed him with an elbow. I see that occasionally in here. The wife jabbing the husband with the elbow. You know, a little tap on the leg or something, a little nudge. Um, But there's something else that's going on, I think, that may, why Nehemiah may have put this in here. Um, It may be in there because of Queen Esther. And if you know her story, her book, the book of Esther is right after Nehemiah. It's a great story. 
Esther was a Jewish woman who had become the queen of Persia, one of the wives, one of the wives, the most important one for the king Xerxes. King Xerxes was the father of this king, Artaxerxes. So Queen Esther was either the mother or the stepmother of this king. And she had exhibited great influence in the king at a very crucial policy decision and had shown herself to be a person who stepped into the role that she had and, again, was a, was a person of influence. And most commentators believe that the reason Nehemiah mentions the queen is he wants to show us that Esther's influence didn't just happen at that time in the book of Esther, but it was continuing for decades that she had set up a precedent for the influence that the queen could have on the king. Isn't that cool? I think that's really cool. So back to verse 6, where the king, before answering Nehemiah, he asked two questions of him. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And now we're going to see that Nehemiah had the faith to prepare. Look at his response. It pleased the king to send me. My prayer was answered. So I set a time. He answers promptly. We don't know the time he set. We'll learn in a few chapters that he was there for 12 years. But he continues in verses 7 and 8. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Um, I love this guy. He had thought about everything. His prayer for four months had also been intertwined with preparation. Is that not true, right? He knew exactly what he wanted. He asked for the safe conduct letters. He said, especially for the ones west of the Jordan, the closer I get to Jerusalem, the more important those letters are that they know that you sent me, right? So he asked for that. Um, One of those letters likely, we'll learn in a few chapters, is a letter that was making him governor of Judah, of that province where Jerusalem was. He also asks, he wants a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. And what's kind of cool about that, again, is his attention to detail. Asaph is a Hebrew name, so he knew the name of the guy. And because it was a Hebrew name, this forest was probably very close to Jerusalem. So most scholars think that it was the timber he was getting was from the cedars of Lebanon, that that's where he was stationed. But here's why this one to me is so important. Um, And why I just am so impressed by Nehemiah, because his requests to God, but now to the king, are so bold, and they're so practical, right? Bold and practical. He doesn't pussyfoot around, and it's so obvious he's done his homework. Can you imagine the amount of research Nehemiah did in those four months while he's praying, the research he's doing on what he needs to have, all the things he needs to get to safely get there and to take that position? It's obvious he's invested so much time so that when he's on the spot, he can answer with such detail. He had been planning as well as praying, not just praying for opportunity, but he was preparing for the opportunity. I'm so impressed with him. So, 12th, hear me, um, because I want us to be clear on this, that the presence of faith does not mean the absence of preparation and organization. The, prepara- the presence of faith does not mean the absence of preparation organization. I think probably we've all in some way had this experience, but don't let, ever let people guilt trip you for organization, planning, preparation as a sign of a lack of faith. 
because that's not true at all. To prayerfully plan shows great faith. What it says is, is I believe so much that God is going to answer and is going to move in this that I'm going to prepare and I'm going to be ready for when he does that. Living by faith doesn't mean I'm living haphazardly, disorganized with no plan, right? 1 Corinthians 14.33 says God is not a God of disorder. Jesus himself in Luke 14 says that if anybody's going on a, on, a, on a venture or they're planning to do something, do they not first count the cost? Count the cost. So yes, pray, but also plan and prepare. Faith and preparation, faith and action, they go hand in hand. They're bedfellows. I love the story of Oliver Cromwell from the British uh, Civil War. He was leading the rebellion against the crown. And one day before a battle, he turned to his men and he said, guys, trust God and keep your powder dry. Isn't that great? Trust God, but keep your powder dry. And that's what Nehemiah was like. He walked that tightrope, that balance between the human and the divine. He lived in, it's not an easy tension to live in, but that tension of prayer and preparation. And as restorers, we need to walk that tightrope too. We need... So in the words of St. Augustine, we need to pray as if it all depended on God, but prepare as if it all depended on me, both at the same time. And that's not easy to maintain, but that's the challenge, the balance that we should strive to live into. And then Nehemiah continues in verse 8. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Even though he had done all this prayer, all this hard work of preparation, he had boldly stepped in the opportunity. He knew that the one ultimately responsible was God. And I realized even this morning during worship, during first service, like as I look at Nehemiah and as I like put this stuff together, I'm always like, isn't he awesome? He's so great and all of that. And I'm like, you know what? The great one in the text is not Nehemiah, it's God and the God that he serves. He's the one that orchestrates it. And Nehemiah gives him the full credit for that. So verse 9 begins to tie up the story as far as we're going today. He says in verse 9, I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. The king has such high respect for him and high trust in him that he actually sent an army escort, something he didn't even ask for. Army and the cavalry, right? If he'd had a navy and an, and an air force and a space force, he would have sent all that too, Right? but he didn't have that. He wanted everybody to know that Nehemiah had his full authority. So finally, we come to verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah didn't know where it would come from, but he knew there would be opposition. He knew that. And that's part of the reason he requested these letters because of people like Sanballat and Tobiah. He knew they would be there. Um, and these are guys we're going to see multiple times in this book. But what I'm impressed with is he still went knowing that opposition was coming. He walked into the teeth of the enemy. And that tells me, the last one, that, Ni that Nehemiah had the faith to enter the storm. He had the faith to enter the storm. Look specifically at the last seven words of verse 11. Circle them, if you're doing that stuff. Circle them. His mission was to promote the welfare of the Israelites. To promote the welfare of the Israelites. 
Don't you just love those words? He was committed to being a restorer, a shalom bringer. He was committed in the words of Jeremiah 29.7 to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. I, I just love those words. But here's the reality, that any time you live as a restorer, there will be somebody who will not like it. They won't like it because it's going to upset the current order and the status quo, right? If you work with God to take what's upside down and to put it right, to turn it right side up, okay, those who are on the top in the upside down world, what happens to them when things are put right? Where do they end up? On the bottom. And they don't like it. And so they will come at you and they will fight it. They don't want restoration. And this is so true of us, that when you try to live as a restorer, I'm not saying necessarily people are going to come against you, but the enemy, Satan, will come against you. He will not want to any of those captives to be set free. That's not what he longs for. He wants to keep people enslaved into the things that are at, and he will come against you. Sometimes he will use people to do that, sometimes not. But whatever the case, we enter the fray knowing that the battle is the Lord's because God is seeking the restoration of all things. And if I'm seeking that, then I know that he's on my side. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? So, don't you just love this guy? Don't you love the God that he serves? He was truly a man of great faith. Truly a man of great faith. Um, His trust and dependence on God amazes me. And we see his faith in the fact he demonstrated it because he had the faith to ask, to wait, to act, to prepare, and to enter into the storm. And as a restorer, I need that kind of faith too, to do those things. So I'm going to ask you a question I asked a couple weeks ago, different list. But if you look at that, I'm curious, if you were to pick one or two of those, you're like, man, I need, that's something I need to do better at. Okay, not as a guilt trip, but what would those two things be? You're writing notes, write that down. Of those two, what are you most needing to work on? You want to know my top one? It's that second one. Waiting is so hard. It's so hard. And then we're going to try to do this every week. A number of you are in a Bible study that you're actually talking about this. And this head, heart, hands, this is something I want us all to get to. This is our habit with anything we read or anything we hear. But some of you are using this. So just let me ask you, what what was the one, two most important things you learned? This is just a head thing today. You can turn to the back. There's a head, heart, hands section Find the first one to the left side, you know, the left that's empty, right Nehemiah 2, 1 to 10 on it. What, what's the most important thing you learned today? Just a head thing. Something you learned, you're like, that, I didn't know, that was pretty, that was pretty big. how about the heart? What did God most speak to you today? What today, how did he tap you on the shoulder? What was the thing you most needed to hear? Write that down. 
whatever, one word description, little phrase, but what did you most need to hear? And then we obey, right? So the hand, what, what specific thing will you do this week to put, it, put that into practice? So 12th, the challenge of all this is let us be restorers. Let us be people of great faith, people who are bold, who are willing to make bold asks of him. We're also willing to demonstrate our faith by waiting for him to provide opportunity the faith that when that comes, as small as it may be, that I'm act and I'll, I will act, I'll step into it. The faith to prepare ahead of time. And finally, the faith to enter the storm. So may we be that kind of people. I want to close with a prayer. Would you stand with me? This is a, a restorer's prayer that I would like us to pray as a community. So would you please join me? Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, I long to live as a restorer. Anoint me again this week to proclaim good news to the poor. Send me out again this week to bind up the brokenhearted. And help me again this week to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We say amen to that again? Yeah. Spirit of the Lord, empower me send me. All right. College students, hang around for lunch. We'll get to hang out. That'll be a lot of fun. 12th, you are sent.